This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. We have a very exciting episode in store for you, all focused on cardiovascular disease. John, welcome from Calgary. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? Good. Not too much snow, but a lot called for for tonight. How about in uh, in Calgary? Yeah, we've had snow for months now. Uh, the weather, though, is finally above, you know, it's been like maybe six degrees last couple of days compared to minus 30, the prior ones. So way warmer. Yeah, sounds like it. Eh? All right. Well, listeners, warm up and listen to a couple uh, recently published high impact articles. John, what do you have up for us first? So first up, we're going to cover a paper called The Association of Bariatric Surgery with Major Adverse Liver and Cardiovascular Outcomes in Patients with Biopsy-Proven Non-Alcoholic Steatohepatitis. This was published in JAMA November 2021 by Amnani et al. Cool. What was the research question? Well, they wanted to know, is there an association between bariatric surgery and major adverse liver outcomes or adverse cardiovascular events in patients with NASH and obesity? But the idea here, too, is to look at some longer term outcomes as well. Okay, I think I'm sold. But why was this important for you? Well, you know this, but NASH is bad. It's the leading cause of cirrhosis and HCC, and really we have no effective treatments. Uh, Bariatric surgery has been shown to lead to very important weight loss, as well as important metabolic improvements like glycemic control, blood pressure control, lipid control. There's also been a signal that there's lower risk of cardiac complications and mortality in patients with obesity. In addition, there's been some observational studies that have suggested in before and after liver biopsies of NASH patients that go for bariatric surgery that they've had histological improvement after surgery. So really, they wanted to say, well, hey, is there any more objective evidence from kind of harder outcomes for liver and cardiac complications? Gotcha. Okay, so what was the study design here? So this was a retrospective cohort study. All patients had to have had a liver biopsy at the Cleveland Clinic Health System between 2004 and 2016. They included patients with NASH without cirrhosis. So for the inclusion criteria, you are aged 18 to 80 with a BMI of greater than 30 and biopsy-proven NASH with fibrosis. They excluded those with F4 histology or clinical cirrhosis. So for example, you know, a history of varices, ascites, et cetera. And then they also removed patients who had chronic liver disease from any other cause. Uh, They excluded those with excessive alcohol use, uh, history of HCC, prior transplant, and some other things. And then essentially they categorized people based on whether or not they had bariatric surgery, and most patients it was Ruan-Y, but it could also have been sleeve gastrectomy versus not having surgery, and those patients would have been the controls. For the index date, it was the date of liver biopsy, which for the surgical patients, it was actually standard of care to have that done at the time of surgery, whereas the index date for controls was the date of the first biopsy when they met all the selection criteria. So for the outcomes, the first was major adverse liver outcomes, which was a composite of progression to clinical or histologic cirrhosis, development of HCC, uh, going for liver transplant, or liver-related mortality outcomes. And then for cardiac stuff, they looked at MACE, so a composite of occurrences of myocardial infarction, uh, needing to go for PCI, having CV surgery, stroke, CHF, etc. The stats were a bit nuanced, and I'm sure you have some experience with versions of propensity score matching, but essentially they use something called an overlap weighting, which is my understanding is that it's a type of propensity score. And they also did a sensitivity analysis with more of a typical kind of conventional propensity score analysis. Cool. Yes, that is definitely an area of statistical interest. 
and also a surefire way to put listeners to sleep. So I'll stop talking now. Um, what did the patients look like who are included in the study? So, you know, again, they started just looking at all comers who had a liver biopsy, and that was about 25,800 patients. But then after exclusions, there were 11,158 patients who were included in the analysis. But ultimately, after the matching, there were 462 patients in the surgery group and 462 in the non-surgical group. 64% of the patients were women. The median age was 50 years. The median BMI was 44, and most were Caucasian. In the surgical group, 83% had a Roux-en-Y bypass, and the median follow-up time was seven years. So prior to this overlap weighting, bariatric surgery group did have higher rates of things like hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, CHF, as well as a more market elevated BMI. And the non-surgical group had higher rates of histologically worse steatosis and fibrosis. Gotcha. Okay. And I think you said there were 11,000 patients, but you meant 1,100 patients. Is that right? Oh, sorry. Yeah, did I? Yeah. So 1,158 patients. Gotcha. Okay. And then after matching, they had sort of 462 in the surgery group and 462 who did not get surgery. You got it. So what did they find here? So when you look at that major adverse liver outcome at 10 years, five patients in the bariatric group compared with 40 in the non-surgical group had major adverse liver outcomes. And this corresponded to about 2.3% compared to 9.6% and a hazard ratio of 0.12. For the cardiac outcome of MACE at 10 years, there were 39 patients in the bariatric group versus 60 in the control group. And this corresponded to 8.5% of patients compared to 15.7 with a hazard ratio of 0.30. There were some other things too, like, you know, body weight reduction was more impressive uh, unsurprisingly in those patients that went for bariatric surgery, as well as improved A1C glycemic control. You know, of course, bariatric surgery can be a pretty big deal. And so they also looked at what the complications were within that group of patients. And 9.5% or 62 patients did have some kind of major adverse event. And this could have included things like postoperative sepsis, uh, GI leak, bleeding, etc. And within the first year, 4 or 0.6% of patients did die. Gotcha. Okay. Eh, these results sound too good to be true, but I will get to that in the main limitations. But this is your article. What were some of the limitations that you thought of here? Well, one of the things that we didn't talk about uh, that I didn't bring up for the methods is that in the analysis, if patients had conditions prior to biopsy, for example, a history of heart failure, then any hospitalization for heart failure after biopsy was actually not counted as an event for MACE. And this kind of struck me because, sure, I know they're doing this fancy analysis with matching criteria to try to even out the confounders between the group. But ultimately, those in the bariatric group at baseline had higher rates of things like CHF, which could then lead to underreporting of, you know, negative cardiovascular outcomes. You know, of course, this is a quasi-experimental design, and so you can never account for all uncontrolled confounders. Um, and then the outcome events themselves did have fairly wide confidence intervals, so not a lot of precision within those estimates. Yeah, you know, I would go one step further. You know, you just can't compare a group of individuals who get a surgery compared to those who don't. There is such a, pun intended, massive difference between the two groups. I just don't buy it. And I think, sure, bariatric surgery is amazing, but I don't buy that all these benefits are from bariatric surgery. I think there's a lot of selection bias going on here. Anyway, that's it for me. What's the take-home point here for our listeners? 
you know, with this observational data, it did show that there was a signal for lower rates of liver complications as well as cardiovascular complications for patients who underwent bariatric surgery with underlying NASH. Okay, so practice changing for you? Well, I mean, I totally acknowledge that you really can't easily compare these two groups of patients. But are we ever going to see a randomized control trial that addresses this question directly with the quality of data like the liver biopsy at baseline? You know, probably not. But I can't say that this is going to change my practice per se. I think what it does remind me, though, is that in our patients who are obese and who are struggling to lose weight despite, you know, lifestyle and medications, and they have all these other metabolic syndrome complications, that getting them referred or considered for bariatric surgery can be important to improve other important outcomes. Yeah, that I definitely agree with. And I think we do a pretty bad job on the inpatient service of managing chronic diseases that are unrelated to why somebody's in hospital. And I think you're right. We should probably be referring a lot more patients for bariatric surgery. Anyway, that was an interesting article. I'm now going to talk about terzepatide versus insulin, glargine, and type 2 diabetes and increased cardiovascular risk, a randomized open-label parallel group multi-center phase three trial published in Lancet in November 2021. Okay, perfect. Uh, two questions. What is terzepatide and what was the research question? Yeah, fair. So I'll answer the latter first. So the research question here was, you know, what is the cardiovascular safety of terzepatide? And this is an injectable medication. It's a novel GIP and GLP-1 agonist. So works similar to the GLP-1 agonists that we're familiar with, like semaglutide. So the goal here was terzepatide versus insulin uh, in adults with type 2 diabetes at high cardiovascular risk who are inadequately controlled on oral medications for their diabetes. Okay, great. Why did you think this was important? It falls under that umbrella of it's diabetes, you know, like that's all the sort of justification I think we need. But to your question, you know, what is this molecule? Well, the way that it acts is that it enhances insulin secretion by reducing glucose adjusted glucagon secretion. So that's kind of cool. And it also similar to metformin has this like insulin sensitizing effect. So that's sort of how this new kid on the block works. And as you're about to see, I think this is going to be an impressive class of medications. Okay, great. Uh, what was the study design? So uh, open label phase three trial in 14 countries, they included adults 18 plus with type two diabetes. They were on oral meds, including, you know, metformin, sulfonylureas, SGLT2s, and they had A1C of 7.5 to 10 and percent a BMI above 25, and the vast majority had established cardiovascular disease. The key exclusion criteria included folks with type 1 diabetes, pancreatitis, DKA, a recent prior severe hypoglycemia, or if they were actively taking a GLP-1 agonist or DPP-4 inhibitor. So the randomization here was three different doses, potentially, of once-weekly terzepatide versus glargine. So, of course, that's why it wasn't blinded. Glargine is once a day, whereas terzepatide is once a week. And this was a non-inferiority trial, uh, lasted for 52 weeks, and their main outcome was change in hemoglobin A1c, and they also looked at um, cardiovascular events as well. Okay, good. So they they did not make those in the terzepatide group have like saline injection sub-Q every day that they didn't get their injection, hey? No, that would have probably been the more rigorous way to go about it, but they did not do that. Okay, fair enough. Uh, what do the patients look like? 
screened. So 3,000 were screened and 2,000 were randomized. Um, average age of 63, 60% women, 80% Caucasian, um, average A1C of 8.5%, most had diabetes for over a decade, average BMI in the low to mid 30s, 85% had cardiovascular disease, average GFR was 80, and 95% were on metformin and almost a third on SGLT2. So these patients were on some pretty impressive drugs to begin with. Yeah, okay. So what did they find? So as noted, their main outcome was change in A1C. So if you were on Glargine, your A1C fell by approximately 1.5%, whereas if you're on terzepatide, it fell by approximately 2.5%. So pretty impressive and met the non-inferiority bound. And if anything, it smells like it might be superior. Um, some side effects to be aware of, uh, nausea and diarrhea affected one in five patients who were on their terzepatide, and it was pretty rare with um, insulin. There was less hypoglycemia though with terzepatide, one in 10 versus two in 10, no increased risk of cardiovascular events, and a hazard ratio of 0.74, which suggests benefits, but of course the study wasn't powered for that. And probably what's most impressive is if you got terzepatide you had about a 10 kilogram in weight loss uh, relative to insulin. That's pretty remarkable. Wow, 10 kilos is huge. And I mean, the A1C is impressive too. Of course, the A1C is just a number, but if the average was like an 8.5% that you started out with, you're no longer diabetic based on your A1C after taking this medication. That's pretty cool. What were some of the limitations though? So you already sort of alluded to one, it's unblinded. So of course, in an unblinded study, the patient knows what they're getting, the doctor knows what they're giving, and that could change their behavior. Having said all of that, you can't really fake that degree of reduction in A1C, and you can't really fake that degree of weight loss. So definitely that is the important limitation. Another big limitation from a pragmatic standpoint will be how expensive will these drugs be, but that's yet to be determined. Okay, uh, so what's the take home here? These drugs are going to be amazing. Of course, we need to see how their side effect profile weighs out in the real world. But the fact that a quarter of these patients run SGLT2s and they still experience this degree of benefit is really impressive. Jeez, so are they on the market yet? Because <laughs> if so, will they change your practice? Yeah, exactly. So they're not in the market yet. I'm a big fan of SGLT2s and also a big fan of uh, semaglutide, you know, like the once weekly GLP-1 agonist. And this will sort of definitely be another medication, which I will look to for patients who are not well controlled on metformin or they are well controlled on metformin, um, but they're at high cardiovascular risk. So this will definitely practice changing. Yeah, that's really impressive. Wow. I know. It's like you don't even need good stuff when you got a medication that good. But but anyway, <laughs> um, what was your good stuff for this week, John? Yeah. Can I just use that drug as my good stuff? Yeah. Um, no, I, I've got something. So this was recently in the news. And, uh, you know, we haven't been able to fly too much with COVID. But this article is from the CBC. It's about a physician who was in the right place at the right time and helped to safely deliver a baby on a mid, I can't remember where they were coming or going from, but a really nice heartwarming story. I think she's actually a physician from Toronto. But uh, yeah, so check it out. We'll have a link to the website. Yeah, that is a good one. Yeah, mine is, you know, during this pandemic, I've found the need for like new music and new music to listen to. So a terrific set to check out is the Sunrise set by Lane 8, an incredible DJ. Uh, that is my good stuff for this week. Just some terrific music to work to, listen to, uh, or work out to even.
Oh, I'm always looking for new music. I'll check that one out for sure. Awesome, John. Take care and we'll chat again soon. Yeah, take care, Mike. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.